Welcome to season four of the Dynamic Leader podcast. My name is Shelley Flett. I believe that leadership at its core requires strong relationships, the ability to sit in a space of genuine curiosity and the courage to build capability in others. I believe great leaders are lifelong learners. And so my intention is to help you to continue your learning journey by bringing you new perspectives from experts in their field. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. So today we're talking about collaboration. And in a collaborative nature, I am speaking with Grayson James, who's been helping experts, sorry, has been helping executives, boards and senior management teams to improve their collaborative business performance for over 30 years. Um, Grayson says that most of us believe that good collaboration depends on how cooperative our colleagues are, and that is a costly mistake. And I'm really curious about that. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us, Grayson. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, how often do you get called James instead of Grayson? <laughs> oh, I'd say about 49% of the time. Must have been a challenging thing for your parents to go, what do we name someone with the last name of James? <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but if I think about collaboration, I, I get the sense that in a lot of workplaces, it's a word that is thrown around a lot, a little bit like, I don't know, empowerment was maybe six years ago. And it was, I think empowerment was beaten to death and, and, there are so many senior leaders when you go, you know, you need to empower your people. You see them visibly cringe. Um, I I worry that collaboration is sort of headed down the same path. Came to get your thoughts. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that there's some, you're picking up on something there and um, I'm not really that worried about it, but I think that, you know, I talk about collaboration really as simply being a, uh, working together with other people to get important stuff done. That's really what it is. And that's not going to go away. So we might call it different things, but we're going to have to continue to work with each other to get important things done. That's why there are organizations. And if there were uh, that were not necessary, we wouldn't really need organizations. We would all just be doing our own thing. Yeah. So I don't think it's going away, although the, the terminology may change. It'll probably evolve. Yeah. Like these things do. Do you see the um, increased focus on collaboration aligned with a reduction in hierarchical structures? I do. I've noticed it over the years. And uh, I mean, I think we've all kind of noticed that the nature of uh, interactions and expectations are changing and have been changing for quite a while in organizations you know, moving from the classic top-down command and control model to, uh, which is still around. There are still pockets of that for sure. And, uh, but for the most part, that doesn't fly so well anymore. And especially with uh, younger folks in the workplace, it's just not where it's at. Mm. Can we just pause on that for a second and just explore a little bit of command and control? Because I, while I don't think it, it, um, should be the default. I also don't think that we should completely remove it because there are there are contexts and situations where command and control actually works really well, is effective, and you know is sometimes needed. Yeah, I agree with you. 
Yeah, I think I think the distinction for me lies in in what you said. We sometimes need it. It's a way of engaging and interacting with people, just like what we whatever we think of when we think of more collaborative ways of leading and engaging. There's a time and place for that. There's a time and place for consensus, and there's absolutely a time and place for no consensus whatsoever. This is what we need to do, and this is what we're going to do. And I'm I'm all in support of that. I'm supportive of anything that works in the given context. And that's really the challenge. And that's where we encounter so many problems is that people are stuck in particular ways of thinking and uh, being leaders mm -hmm. and also being the people who are led by the leaders. There, you know, There's always a, a systemic nature there, dimension going on. But if all we have is one or the other, if the only thing you can do is collaborate and, and try and reach consensus on everything, that's you, you've got a big problem there. So for me, the trick is how do we really uh, discern what's needed at this time? Mm -hmm. And how do we give ourselves and our nervous systems the capacity to pivot and to respond effectively within a given situation. Otherwise we're just driven by habits. And there's a lot of that, you know, we all are driven by habits, um, but to that extent, we're also kind of unable to, to change our tunes when we need to. I so hear you. I mean, my default is command and control. I grew up in a very <clears throat> command and control household and it worked, I think it quite worked quite well given the, the context and the environment. Um, and this morning I went into um, command and control with my eight-year-old who I've been collaboratively um, trying to support her through the learning to tie shoelaces. And I sort of think she's a little bit old to be learning. She should already. So there's some expectations there that kind of sit. Um, and this morning she's like, no, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, and I, you know, this is the reason why. And I explained all of that kind of thing. And she's like, yeah, I'll learn to tie my shoelaces when I'm nine. So she had really good arguments as to how she could survive the next 12 months without learning to tie her <laughs> shoelaces. And eventually I said, sit down, tie your shoelaces. I'm, I, I'm not listening to reasons now. This is what you need to learn to do because I don't want to continue to tie your shoelaces. So went down this like command and control and I'm thinking to myself, have I just defaulted to what's easiest for me or is this right? And I'm, you know, I've been playing with this kind of idea for years and I still question whether I'm getting the right style in the right context. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Shelley. I And, you know, I mean, if we're going to be talking about family, well, that is definitely the most challenging environment to try and figure this stuff out in. Uh you know, in, in terms of how readily our buttons get pushed. A lot easier to do it with corporate clients <laughs> and our colleagues at work. And that's not always easy. But um, yeah, I mean, you have needs too. And, um, you know, your need at the moment was, I don't want to keep tying your shoelaces. So get it together here. Yeah. And I'm here. Yeah. I will help you to do it. But there will yeah. become a point in time where you have to do this yourself. Yeah. I, I think, and I also think about this with teams, right? You've got a team that has been maybe doing work that doesn't belong in their area um, 
and it sits better with someone else and maybe it belonged there, but over time it's kind of morphed over, is how do you give that back? Yeah. That's an interesting question. And, and uh, you know, one of the, the questions that arise from that question for me is who would be the one giving it back? You know, how, who determines that? How Where does that conversation take place? Is that a conversation that happens with the team in a what we could call the collaborative setting? Or is that, you know, hey, guys, um, we're done with this. You're not going to say yes anymore when this other team asks you to take on this project. That's their job. End of conversation. You know, both can happen. Both might be appropriate. And do we need to be willing to go either way, depending on, you know, is it let's try the collaborative way um, first? But if they're like my daughter, nah, I'm okay. You keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I, I lean away from trying to answer questions like that sort of with formulas because I, I've just failed so many times. I love that. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work for me because every situation is different. The people, the dynamics. And um, so in general, I think my default in a situation like this is to engage the team and uh, try and understand how they're seeing things. Is it a problem from their perspective? What type of problem might it be? Why is it a problem from my perspective? And the reason for that being my default is because if if I can uh, arrive at a, a shared decision, then that also means I'm more likely to have shared commitment and that the uh, the outcome is going to go better. Whereas if I make the decision, if I make all the decisions, it's much more likely that they're just going to come right back and bite me. They're going to come back in indirect ways. People are going to feel uh, distance themselves from the decision you know, all sorts of things happen. So those are things are less likely to happen when they've been part of the conversation. Plus the solutions are usually better mm. when the people who are involved in the problem and for whom it is a problem are engaged in trying to find solutions rather than them being imposed. Now, I know this as a consultant, I used to, you know, go in there and um, I had great solutions you know, because that's what consultants are supposed to do, at least in the old days. They're supposed to have the answers and tell the team what to do. And I would dutifully did that, and it hardly ever worked. And even when it did work, I'm not sure it really worked. So, you know, a lot of hard-learned lessons there for me about uh, where do problems live and where do solutions live? And that's actually one of the, the themes in my my book that I'm I find most interesting is this whole notion of problems mm. and where do they actually arise? And what I see is that there are no problems out there. I could look anywhere. I could listen to any team or any leader talk about their problems. And if we, we examine them closely enough, we realize, well, that's a problem for this person, this team in this context, but from another context, it's not a problem. And that's actually a very freeing, it's, it's a liberation lies there. 
liberation in terms of thinking and problem solving, because when we realize problems are declared, I declare something to be a problem and it's a problem for me, but it's not necessarily for you. And if you help me see that this is a problem for me because of the way I'm thinking about things or the standards I'm applying or the expectations I have or the discomforts I might have in certain situations, I can think about that. I can reflect on that. And I may be much more open to solving the problem in different ways or even realizing, oh, you know what? It's not really such a problem after all. I thought it was a problem with this person or this team, but I realize it's actually, maybe I'm even contributing it to it by the way I'm relating to this person or this team. Yeah. So for me, I've really come to see that um, we are where the action is when we're collaborating. It's really, of course, when we're collaborating, we, we need to do it with all these other people. That's what collaboration is about. But if I think that my my role as a good collaborator is to try and get all those people out there to come around and be more collaborative. That's a fool's errand. I'm just going to be pissing people off. Mm. And I need to shift my attention to myself. What am I doing that? How am I perpetuating the defensiveness on, on this colleague's part without even realizing and certainly without intending it. So really shifting attention back to myself and how, how I'm declaring problems and approaching the solutions. That's an interesting one when I, um, you know, one of there's an exercise that I run with, um, you know, leadership groups that I work with around um, being able to move from first person to second person to third person perspective. So, you know, first person seeing things through my eyes and how I experience things. Second person is being able to actually step into the other person's view of, the situation, the experience. And then the third person is that like, um, you know, I call it the fly on the wall. So being able to kind of step out and look down. Um, and I think that when we, sometimes when we look within ourselves, we hold on to all of our experiences and our beliefs and we can convince ourselves that actually there's nothing wrong here. Yeah. And often it's not until you go, and even when people say, yeah, yeah, I'm in second person perspective, it's like, well, what do you see there? Well, I see this, but I think they're wrong. And it's like, well, no, you're bringing your own perspective over to there. So you have to leave it behind. Um, and then third person perspective, um, so many just really struggle to kind of, they get the concept, but to actually get up above it. Uh, but I'm keen to hear like what your you know, how does someone build that awareness within themselves to be able to you know, question and challenge that? That's a great question. I, I like also the way you were speaking about, it. I like the first, second, third person uh, framework that you were mentioning. That's That sounds very powerful. Yeah. You know, it's hard to do it ourselves. It's hard to do that for ourselves. It's like, you know, um, lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, it, we generally need some outside perspective, whether it's a colleague, somebody who's not involved in this in the situation, a coach, a consultant, a mentor, um, because it's just hard for us to see ourselves with just ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I find really helpful is helping people understand how the way they're using language contributes to how they are seeing the world. And when we see the role of language differently, it starts to soften our, our grip on what we think is reality. Mm. 
which gives us a greater capacity to step into a, the second person's shoes or a third person's shoes. And um, so for instance, yeah, I was talking about problems a minute ago, problems are declared and a declaration is a very specific animal in the world of language. Yeah. A declaration is a linguistic action that we take that's completely different than asserting a fact, for instance. We know that opinions and facts are different, but a declaration of which uh, opinions are a type of declaration, they're not about right or wrong. Mm. Declarations are about how am I subjectively experiencing the world? What do I care about? What do I prefer? What do I want? And But we often confuse them. And we confuse our own declarations with statements of fact to ourselves. So if I say, well, uh, Stephen is uh, not interested, he's just uncollaborative and he doesn't care about collaborating with me. Well, grammatically, it's the same as saying Stephen is five feet, 10 inches tall and weighs 170 pounds. But linguistically, it's a completely different act that I'm taking. If, but I treat it the same. So I believe that my assessment of Stephen, my interpretation of Stephen, is that he is an uncle, that is a property of him. So of course, I'm going to continue to relate to him the only way I could reasonably, which is, hey, he's a problem. I've got to solve this problem. And we know how that goes. Mm. You know, how many of us like to be solved by our colleagues? We don't. So if I can can remember that, oh, I'm I'm inventing a story. I'm telling myself, I'm making a declaration to myself that I'm treating as a fact. Okay, wait a minute, just slow down here, Grayson. Maybe that says more about me and my experience when I'm around Stephen than it does about Stephen. That starts to loosen the soil. Then I can start being a little more open. So maybe there are other interpretations about Stephen. I'm going to go talk to Shelly because she's worked with Stephen. Shelly, what's your take here? What? How do you see him? Oh, you have a really different interpretation. That's a great data point for me. So, is that where you need to be a little bit careful about who you ask? Because um, if yes. Shelly was worried about our relationship, you know, Shelly's relationship with Stephen, um, she could just agree and and tell Stephen what he wants to hear. So we have, we've got to be a bit careful about who we get perspective from. That's right. I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. So we we routinely invent stories about ourselves, about our people that we work with, about our situations. And then we fall into the trap of believing our stories and forgetting that we invented them in the first place. <laughs> and then we're stuck. We basically built a nice box around ourselves and we have situated ourselves very comfortably in this box. But to us, the box is invisible. It's just how the world is mm. within that box. So stepping out of the box is, uh, you know, that's the challenge, I think, for, for a, a lot of collaborative challenges, uh, problems that we face. Mm -hmm. How do we pull ourselves out of that box that we ourselves have created? And that, you know, there's a, a number of questions and you, you've asked a few of them already, um, a, along with external support and perspective from people who will challenge your thinking, will feel comfortable to give a different view than you, um, and whatever the reaction you might um, 
respond with. <laughs> I think sometimes we say, oh, I don't really see them um, as I see them a little bit differently to be prepared for whose side are you on? <laughs> yeah, right. There's always that possibility. <laughs> yeah. So your um your quote around, you know, most of us believe that good collaboration depends on how cooperative our colleagues are. And that's a costly mistake. Tell us about that, that relationship with cooperation and collaboration. I'm really keen to, to hear. Well, let me let me give you an example. Um, from this is a workshop. I, I write about this in the book. Um, a workshop I was leading in Manila a few years back. And uh, at the beginning of the workshop, one of the participants, let's call him Robert, uh, he was describing a scenario where uh, there is a group in his organization that he said never wants to change the way it does things. Every time a new challenge comes up, they always want to fall back on their old way of doing things. So he was uh, complaining about this. And he says it just leads to the same exhausting arguments you know, in every meeting. And ultimately, we all just give up and go back to our respective silos. And uh, we waste a lot of time and dupl duplicate a lot of work. So his goal, this was part of an exercise in the workshop. Robert's goal was to get this recalcitrant group to adopt his thinking, to be more collaborative, to get with the program. And he shared the following conversational strategy. He said, well, uh, in my next conversation, I'm going to approach this personably. Uh, I'm not, I'm going to um, ask questions. I'm going to try and not make them defensive uh, because the ultimate, the optimal solution will be for them to accept my suggestions based on sound reason and not just feeling like they need to appease me or accommodate me. I don't want them to feel forced into it. So, you know, that sounds reasonable. Like that's a, a savvy approach, right? Uh, the problem is that if we look at it from a different perspective, how would you feel? How would you respond to somebody who used that strategy with you? Because what Robert revealed in his description of the team and his own conversational strategy was that they are fundamentally unreasonable. He is fundamentally reasonable. Uh, so you would debate the merits, but ultimately you would need to adopt his suggestions, his ideas, if you were to be a reasonable person. Now, he could try and act like that's not his belief, in which case he's violating his own principles, probably of honesty and transparency. But hey, you know, it's for the greater good, so you can justify that. But it's going to leak through. You are going to feel that in the conversational strategy. You're going to feel led, manipulated. Whether you actually articulate it to yourself or not, this happens to us all the time. And so Robert understood the importance of not creating more defensiveness and and the the uh the problem of just compliance or appeasement, but the way he framed the problem in the first place almost guaranteed that his strategy would produce defensiveness and compliance. Mm -hmm. So the way he formulated the problem had the problem embedded in it right there. So his view of the collaboration 
i.e. that the problem lay outside of himself, that it was with these uncollaborative people who were unreasonable, unsensible, nonsensible, uh, had the very seeds of his own failed collaborative attempt. Mm. So uh, that's what I mean by we can't just be focusing out there and trying to fix everybody else. It just doesn't work. It creates greater polarities, more defensiveness, and more righteousness in me because I become increasingly justified. Well, see, I tried being reasonable. I presented various options. They didn't take them. They are unreasonable. I was right. I can't work with these people. So the way we frame things often have both the seeds of our failure, but also the reinforcement of our own belief that we are right. So can you give us that example in contrast, what that would look like with it, with an approach that was collaborative and, and got the outcome that he wanted? Yeah, I think this is going to sound like uh, duh to you. So um, one thing that I would I might suggest to him now, I don't tell people what to do, like in this workshop, I keep asking questions. And that's what I would have him do too. So I, you know, I understand, Robert, that you are you are pretty uh, dissatisfied with your interactions with these people. Uh, how open are you to their worldview? Mm. So it's what you were talking about, going to the second person, even going to the third person. At, move to curiosity, move to inquiry. That's one of the most powerful moves. And you've probably seen this. It's also one of the rarest things that happen especially when people are really feeling pressure. They have to get this done now. They need to reach this decision. The project is off the rails. They, they're you know hemorrhaging dollars and time. That's when it's hardest for people to actually soften their positions and move to inquiry and say, well, why is it that, you know, I have the feeling that when we've talked about these things, we don't get anywhere. And uh, is there something that I'm doing or something that I say that may be getting in the way for you. I'm just blind to myself. I'm doing my best, like we all are. But Shelly, you know, can you share with me what, what you see happening here? Tell me why doing it the way you're doing it uh, seems to, to make so much sense to you. And we just, uh, we've changed the context of the conversation. Mm. Now, there's no guarantees. And again, if I can do that, I can still find ways of doing even that in a manipulative way, and that still won't work. I have to actually make a shift in myself to be genuinely curious. And that requires that I be able to, to question my own uh, grasp on how things are. What if you have, have a leader? What if you have a leader that just doesn't care? about other people like it's like I just want to get I just want to get my outcome like just stop making this hard for us all just you know yeah. I, I need I need this to happen right now I would probably say you go for it <laughs> go for it and let and you know let me know how it goes yeah <laughs> it could be one of those situations that we were talking about at the beginning where hey damn it we're doing it I don't want to hear anything about it you know you just do it and, and it could be that was exactly what needed to happen. But mm. it's often not. Do you know and what, often, I, do you know what I love about that is 
so it's that um it's that using this concept of being collaborative where it's like you're now is not you are not going to be collaborative right now and that's not even what you want to do so stop mixing the two together and yeah beautiful that's great I, a great catch there shelly yes exactly let's just know what we're doing yeah and be clear about what we're doing if i'm being authoritative and and i'm commanding then that's what i'm doing and i'm going to do it the best i can yeah and it could be exactly right for this moment in time with this group in mm. this situation on the other hand you know, I need to be aware and take responsibility for that. I'm not omniscient. I'm not um, omniscient. I can't always know what the right approach is. Sometimes you just need to try things. So I would say, hey, try it and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, then, I, you know, I'm happy to talk with you further and we can explore other options. I love that. And it also makes me think, you know, when you say um, a problem is not a problem from a different context, is also a problem isn't a problem unless someone sees it as a problem, which is like, yeah. you know, we can all look at each other and go, oh, you got problems. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but unless you say see, I've got a problem. We see each other's problems so much more clearly than our own. Yeah. And so when we're talking about, you know, bringing on different perspectives, I think, um, that's a really hard one from a communication point of view because words just hold so much meaning and sometimes the meaning isn't articulatable through the words themselves and, you know, it gets really, you know, how do we collaborate in this environment where I am likely to say something at some point that will offend and that I want you to call me on it but I don't want you to take that personally because I think that can really help with collaboration as well. Like if we're going to collaborate, there's there's like an element of openness that we need with communication, isn't there? I think it sure helps. Yeah, yeah. This is um this is a really um a charged environment that so many of us are living in these days, and I'm sure I have probably already offended, you know. 15 to 25% of the people listening to this podcast without even realizing it, you know, with good intentions, because I'm blind. I don't see what everyone else sees. Mm -hmm. I, I just see what I see, the world that makes sense to me. And I, you know, I speak what I see. And um, yeah, and we are so, um, so many of us feel like we have to walk around on eggshells today. And it's a good thing because it means that we're paying a lot more attention to the fact that we live in a on a planet with other people who are very different from us and just as legitimate. And we need to account for that and we need to recognize that and, and do our best to meet people where they are. And at the same time, I'm never gonna get it fully right. You know, we all have our blind spots. If, um, so I think to, to your point, the more we can help our clients, the people we work with and the people we love and, and spend time with and ourselves remember that we're all doing our best. Nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to piss other people off, you know, except once in a while. But we usually know when we want to piss other people off. Um, but generally we don't. And um, if we can cut each other a little bit of slack along with ourselves, 
that goes a long way. Then we can have more open, freer conversations. And we kind of hold things lightly. We're not so attached to our own views. We don't take things quite so personally. That's that's not an easy, you know, that's a tall order. And so um, leaders that uh, pull their team together and go, guys, we need to collaborate more. Let's do that. Is that kind of going to the, I, I sort of see that as you're going to the final step. <laughs> a lot of work that's required in between. And this is why I think collaboration is one of those buzzwords that might piss people off eventually. It's like, well, we'd sp- we've been talking about collaboration. God knows how long it's in our values and all of this kind of thing. And they, they just don't get it. It's like they're missing the, um, I'm trying to think of a metaphor and all that's coming up is food. Um, you know, it's that I I, I want to put, I've got this beautiful gravy for my dish to finish it off. I actually haven't cooked the dish. If yeah. I was kind of trying to put a metaphor to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I would say, well, let's call it something else, guys. I don't care what we call it. Um, Come up with a word that feels good for you. Mm. What I'm interested in is not what we're calling what we're doing, but how we're doing what we're doing and what we're noticing about how we're doing what we're doing. That's really where the magic is. When we can bring new awareness to what we're doing, new awareness of how I'm using my words, how I'm using my attention, what's happening in my body as we're in this conversation, that is a lot more valuable and, and uh, will take me a lot farther than um, worrying about, are we calling what we're, what we're doing collaboration or something else? It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Yeah. And um, so what are you noticing? How are you paying attention? How are you using yourself? Those are the questions that I think are really get to what, what you and I are interested in and what our clients call us up to help them figure out. So let me ask you this, with your, with your coaching and working with, you know, <clears throat> executives, how often do you get that this feels a little bit like therapy um, or that I'm seeing a counselor <laughs> <laughs> when actually, you know, I'm just wanting to be working on the business side or my professional side. Do you, do you get that? I have I have now and then I do. I usually get it though um, kind of as a joke after we've worked together and people feel comfortable and they know it works and then they say, you know, they'll make jokes. So a little bit about me, uh, I'm not a therapist. Uh, I My background is in uh, leadership, um, coaching, uh, conflict resolution. I used to teach it and I was a professional mediator for a number of years. And Aikido, the martial art of Aikido, I've, I've been studying and teaching that for almost 40 years now. And that heavily informs my practice, my consulting and coaching. And so sometimes they will, you know, make a joke because I'll have them, I'll have executive teams do movements, exercises, and um, focus on mind body awareness and breathing practices. So, you know, I'll definitely get jokes about, you know, here comes a uh, yes grasshopper or, you know, here comes the um, the guru or the Tai Chi master or whatever. I just let it slide. They're good, good natured. Now, I will say probably 25 years ago, I, I went to work with a 
the senior leadership team of a large manufacturing organization in New York City. And after about um, 20 minutes in the room with them, one of the executives kind of grumbled under his breath, where do they get these California consultants? <laughs> so that's in, in the U.S., that's kind of the, uh, you know, the ultimate statement, the ultimate um, indictment that, hey, this is a little touchy-feely for me. But I don't get that anymore. You know, I mean, it's th this stuff, mindfulness is in the mainstream. Uh, people get that it works. And if they don't, I don't push it on anybody. I tell them, look, I'm not selling any of this stuff. And if it's not for you, that's fine. I, I can respect that. You know, let's find a language that we can use that works for us. What I'm interested in is results, actually. The only reason I think collaboration matters is for the outcomes. If you don't need to get there together, then let's let's go bowling or let's do something else. Mm. Let's not worry about collaboration. Let's not, it's hard work to work on yourself. It's just hard work. It's not worth it unless there's really a payoff. So um, why is it that you would want to collaborate together anyway? And that's our starting place. Mm. And that kind of dispels that, you know, the those concerns about are we, you know, kumbaya. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I also have people sit in a circle with no tables in between. That right there can blow people's minds in some industries, you know. Mm. So that, that's where the jokes, oh, it's the circle of trust, and they start singing the Lion King or whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, you know, I go along, I think that's kind of fun and funny. And then it we get down to business and we talk about real things. Yeah. I actually, um, I do my in-person workshops where I can, where there's not that massive boardroom table that can't be moved, um, but I will do my sessions in that circle um, form. And yeah. I got that off um, a trainer that I've been working with for years. And I remember the first time when I attended one of her workshops, I was so pissed off. I was like, where is the bloody table? This is going to be so uncomfortable. I've got nowhere to lean my elbow, but you know, on reflection, it's, I had nowhere to hide. Um, and yeah, I, I love that. I think that's just a, such a great way to just remove the materialistic stuff and actually just get to the point. Those, those big, beautiful, expensive, uh, conference room tables are the worst for me. You can't see anybody on your side all the attention gets focused at either end, which is what they're designed to do. So good, check that box, that works. But that doesn't work for what we're trying to help these people do. They're stuck in a, in a you know, in an old um, design structure that is not very effective for real collaboration. So you have to overcome some of that stuff. Do you, um, would you recommend, and I have never seen this, but how awesome would it be if leadership team meetings were done without a table oh absolutely you know that's actually what i recommend people to do and they'd start generally they do that after they've spent a couple days together in that setting realizing go oh, it's just a it's not scary b i actually don't need to have my laptop up in front of me the whole time in order to interact with these other smart creative committed people mm. And the conversation is different. It just is different when you don't have all that stuff in front of you. Mm, yeah. So there's there are a lot of the teams that I work with now. That's just standard practice. And I should probably just point out too. You know, I also start my meetings 
with three or four minutes of uh, either a mindfulness or a breathing practice. And again, you know, people initially go, what the heck is this? You know, why? This is, you know, we're here to work. We're going to get stuff done. And I, absolutely you are. And uh, that's why I want to start off this way. And after they've done it a couple of times, they invariably say, God, I am, uh, I came into the room 20 minutes ago, you know, in a completely different space than I am now. And you can feel the cycles slow down, you know, even over three minutes of um, simple breathing practices and the conversation changes. And uh, I don't do it because I'm trying to sell anybody on this stuff. I only do it because I I see that it works so well. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's important to to um, come from that place, not from trying to, you know, get anybody signed on, on to some new age agenda. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. And yeah, I've I've experienced both as well as a participant that like leads straight into it versus um that. And you know, there's there's different alternatives. I I do I will often do a one word open um which, you know, you give people a moment just to to collect their thoughts and and you know, ground themselves to a certain degree. But there's different ways. And what I like about what you said um just before was um it's, you know, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. Let's like, what do you want to do? I, I don't mind which way we go about this as long as we get to this outcome. And I think, I think sometimes we're too fixated on how we want things to be done. Um, and, you yeah. know, circles back to the beginning of the conversation is being able to go in and go, I've got loads of ideas, um, but it's the, it's the outcome we really need to get to. Yeah, and you know that's hard for us consultants and coach types, uh, because of what we were talking about. The expectation is often that they're going to come in and fix us, and you know that's why we're paid the big bucks to come in with the solutions and fix people. And um, so it's taken a lot of work on my part to, um, and I'm sure your part too, to be able to walk into a room with good ideas, and but to be able to just let it go at the drop of a hat and say, okay, you know, your idea is better. Why? Because it's your idea and let's explore it and see how it works. It may work great. In which case I'm going to add that to my uh, possibilities in the future. Uh, and if it doesn't work, that's fine. I'm not going to rub it in anyone's face. We all learn from it. So it's kind of practicing. I I increasingly find that my best work is done when I am being in the space that I am hoping to invite other people into. In other words, if I'm brought in to help a, a, a board become have more collaborative interactions, then I'm not going to, it's not going to work for me to come in there with a preset idea of exactly what they need to do. That's kind of contrary to the whole notion. So again, this comes back to I am where the action is. You are where the action is for you. We are each where the action is. We need to work with ourselves to be clean and clear about where we're coming from because that's going to be how people relate to us. And is that where, um, because then the next question that pops up is, well, am I supposed to be prepared for this or am I just supposed to like wing it? And I I think that's also a little bit dangerous as well. But the yeah. the preparation isn't 
you structuring exactly how you want things to go. Can you talk a little bit about what preparation looks like? I do a lot of preparation for my gigs. Um, I'm over-prepared precisely so that I can let go of it all and have some sense of confidence that, you know, there's there's so many ways we could go here. And I've thought through many of them. And I've done it enough, as have you. You've been in this for quite a while, that we, we you know, have a sense of what's going to take us where generally. Mm. But I have to be willing to to be very nimble about how we get there. We know where we know where we want to get, but there are many ways to get there. So I I pay a lot of attention to what is the context in which this group is operating right now. You know, what are the kinds of challenges they're facing? What are the pressures they're up against? How are, I I usually speak to everybody in the team before I go and meet with the team as a whole because I want to hear I want to hear the stories they're each telling about the each other. Mm-hmm. and about themselves that's going to tell me about a lot about what i'm going to encounter that very first meeting and i also use that opportunity to plant some seeds to let them know about me and where i come from my background the kinds of things that i do and what they can and can't expect from me mm-hmm. and then at the beginning of of an engagement i take a lot of time up front to set context along the lines of, hey, look, at we're we are here to have some real conversations. Now, real conversations are not necessarily the same kind of conversations that you're used to having, where you have a clear agenda, you have a time frame, you're going to cover these points, and then you're going to move on. Sometimes real conversations are very nonly, they're messy, they go all over the place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes you, you re- issues come up that you would rather not discuss. And in fact, you may have spent the last year and a half avoiding with each other. Not because you're bad people, just because there doesn't seem, hasn't seemed to be an opportunity to raise it, even though it's really critical that you do. So these are all things that happen. They're natural. Mm-hmm. My job here as your facilitator, or your, your uh, consultant, is to help you work through that stuff as it happens. So I do a lot of things like that. I kind of paint the picture of what they can expect so that when it does happen, I say, hey, look at here we are. Mm -hmm. You're right on target here. All the right things are happening. Yes, you're pissed off at each other. Yes, you don't see any way forward at this particular moment in time. That's okay. It's going to be okay. This is where we need to go right now. And we will get through this. And you're going to come out of this more confident and with stronger trust than if you did by uh, veering off to the side and avoiding it again for another year and a half. Mm -hmm. That doesn't build confidence and it doesn't build competence. It just builds fear and anxiety and it avoids difficult business issues. So I do a lot of things like that. And it seems to work. I am. I'm listening to you. I'm like, yes. And you know that even just listening to you, I'm like, there's so much reward that comes from that at a really personal level. It's like, yes, we got there. Um, Cause you know, it's long lasting. Yeah. Because they did it. Cause they if, did if it. you and I come in with solutions, even if they're brilliant solutions, they're not worth anything. Yeah. They yeah. won't take, people won't have learned from it. They may take a, you know, get a tip or a takeaway or something, but what's that worth? generally not very much. I want them to have the experience of having worked through 
what seemed to fit at the time to be really insurmountable or just awkward, uncomfortable conversations and to realize they did it. Mm. Yeah, we've done it. We did it with Grayson. We did it with Shelly. Let's try it ourselves, you guys, and see how it works. And if we need to bring them back in for another session or two, that's fine. We're learning. It's it's how you learn it, whether it's tennis, cello, basketball, you know, mm. math. You got to go through this process. You have to struggle with it and make it your own. I love that. And I think it's a really nice, um, you know, place to conclude the conversation. And I think um, get your your tips and your nice little techniques or whatever from um, podcasts. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you're yeah. when you're in the room, definitely just go through the experience. I love that. And it's good to see so many other consultants and facilitators and coaches really going down that path now and being able to see the difference that that really makes. So um, thank you so much for joining us for the conversation, Grace, and it's been such a pleasure. Well, likewise, what a great conversation. Good to be with you, Shelley. I really appreciate the invitation. And great to be talking about collaboration. Uh, if you, if anyone wants to um, learn more about um, Grayson or wants to grab a copy of his um, latest book, The Full Contact Performance, we'll include all of the links in the show notes. But thank you for joining us um, and I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you all soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.